Hey everybody, this is Hunter Williams. Today is going to be episode 93 of the NeuroEdge podcast. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. On tap for today, we have the Puritan work ethic, the warrior ethos, relationship currency, tyrosine, and salt. More specifically, more specifically, is salt good for you or bad for you? Take a guess at what I'm going to say. Now, before I jump on into all those topics, like I said, as always, thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you are enjoying the new format where we do some quick breakdown of different topics that I may be interested in or talking about at any given time. And I hope you like it. Let me know your feedback if you like the longer, long format episodes where I do one topic or this where I do kind of a quick overview of some brief topics. I figured it'd be a little bit better just to get exposure to more and I'm always learning and exposing myself to new topics. So I kind of like this because you get a little sample of different ones here and there. But that being said, if you would like to interact more, head on over to the Facebook group. I've got the description in the link below, whether you're watching this on YouTube, Facebook, whatever platform you are watching it on. So check that out and Submit your questions on there for the next Q&A episode that I have coming up. So just let me know what you think about that. And then I can put those in there and then do an Q&A episode. I think those are the funnest because it's more interactive for you guys. You can talk to me and we get to learn and grow together. So that being said, again, my sincerest gratitudes go out to everyone today. And that being said, let's jump into it. So the Puritan work ethic. So... This is something that I think I wouldn't say struggle with, but has been a part of me for much of my life. And I want to talk about my thoughts on it. So I think a lot of us, and if you're watching this episode, you're probably someone that enjoys self-improvement, enjoys making yourself better, working hard to become the best version of yourself. However, at times that can become burdensome and it can become over stressful to the point that you actually aren't going to harness the best work out of yourself if you're constantly forcing yourself to work hard. And again, I say this not to encourage you to be lazy, not to say anything like that. However, if you are doing something that requires physical work or high level intellectual work, eventually if you push yourself, you will come up against a wall. I know that for a fact because I have done that myself. And I always have this burning thing inside me that's telling me, I've got to work harder, I've got to do more, I've got to work harder, I've got to do more. And that is a good thing to an extent. However, after talking with lots of different mentors I've had in my life and reading books from very successful people, there is something to be said for being able to remove yourself from whatever work you're doing, and allow your brain to have time to decompress and actually process what is going on in your life. So... Let me share my screen real quick, and let's talk about this. So the Protestant work, Protestant work ethic, Calvinist work ethic, or the Puritan work ethic is a work ethic concept in theology, sociology, economics, and history, which emphasizes that hard work, discipline, and frugality are a result of a person's subscription to the values espoused by the Protestant faith, particularly Calvinism. So the phrase was initially coined in 1904 to 1905 by Max Weber in his book, The Protestant Ethic in the Spirit of Capitalism, Weber asserted that Protestant ethics and values along with the Calvinist doctrine of asceticism and predestination gave birth to capitalism. So notice the corollaries here of uh, this idea that, and 
for a lot of this, if you live in the United States, these people are probably your ancestors. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But these values are still interwoven into a lot of what we would call capitalism and then also our governmental, societal, economical, economical structure here in the United States. So his book is one of the most influential and cited books in sociology, although the thesis presented has been controversial since its release. In opposition to Weber, historians such as Fernand Braudel and Hugh Trevor Roper asserted that the Protestant work ethic did not create capitalism, that capitalism developed and pre-Reformation Catholic communities. So just as priests and caring professionals are deemed to have a vocation or quote-unquote calling from God for their work, according to the Protestant work ethic, the lowly workman also has a noble vocation, which he can fulfill through dedication to his work. So it's basically this idea that a lot of the people that were here that founded our country, they came and they had the idea that if, if you were committed to God as part of your religion, you also worked extremely hard. And there was no time for downtime or anything like that. Now, did Protestants actually live that way? I don't know. I don't know enough about their history to actually say it. But I do know a lot of the values that people have in today's hard-charging society where they feel like they have to grind all the time and work hard and do all these things come from this Protestant work ethic. So I think that's inbuilt into a lot of us. It's probably inbuilt into a lot of our grandparents, our parents, our great-grandparents, and many people through our generational line. So I just want to bring this up so that you're conscious of the notion of this work ethic and how this may have played into your life. So I didn't even really realize this until a couple years ago that this was something that was kind of inbuilt into my DNA and how I thought about things. So when I did, I was like, oh, so there, there's a reason that I feel this way and probably a reason that you feel this way too, if you feel like you always have to be busy with something. But um, just to go into a little bit more of the history. So there's been a re revitalization of Weber's interest, including the work of Lawrence Harrison, Samuel Huntington, who also wrote, I think, The Clash of Civilization, um, and David Landy's in a New York Times article in June 2003, Niall Ferguson pointed that data for the Organization for Economic Cooperation Development seemed to confirm that the experience of Western Europe in the past quarter century offers an unexpected confirmation of the Protestant work, eth work ethic. To put it bluntly, we are witnessing the decline and the fall of the Protestant work ethic in Europe. The, this represents a stunning triumph of secularization in Western Europe, the simultaneous decline of both Protestantism and its unique work ethic. So they're saying it's on the decline. However, I do think that it's something that kind of is inbuilt into capitalism and inbuilt into how our society functions. And so this idea that you have to be rigid and work until your fingernails are worn down, it's not necessarily the case. And I don't think we're going to do our best work when we are engaging in that type of activity long-term. So I think especially if you're doing something that is intellectually pursuing, there is something to be said for removing yourself from the work in order to actually think about what's going on. So again, just to bring this up, think about your work habits in your life. Are you giving yourself space room to think? Because I know I, I come up with my most creative ideas when I'm not buried in work and busy work, but when I actually have time to think, be out in nature and actually process what's going on in my head. So just wanted to bring that up and hopefully it helps you kind of become more self-aware of your behavior and your work habits.
moving along, so second topic I wanted to talk about today was the warrior ethos. So I feel a really strong connection, and I've never been in the military. I've never been in a formalized what was the best way to say it? Formalized military setting or anything like that. I did play football for much of my life, and that was something that it's more simulated violence. However, there are things that I noticed from this. And one thing I've been just reading books lately and by different people across different cultures, and this idea of the warrior ethos. So what is the warrior ethos and what does it mean? Um, what... What does that mean in 2020? What does that mean for today? How can we, if you feel some sort of connection with this warrior ethos, and maybe you don't, but if you do, uh, particularly if you're a man and you feel kind of in your DNA that you are at least somewhat connected to the idea of the warrior, I think this would be a really cool framework to help understand how you can live that out in today's world where there's not so much a warrior framework and connection that some of our ancestors may have had. So a little bit of background. A warrior is a person specializing in combat or warfare, especially within the context of a tribal or clan-based warrior culture society that recognizes a separate warrior class. So warriors seem to be been present in the earliest pre-state societies. So this goes back thousands and thousands of years. And this is why I think this is built into a lot of our DNA and why we have the tendency to act tribal towards each other. It's sometimes because we have ancestors that this is how they live. So along with hunting, war was considered to be a definitive male activity. Again, going uh, to the masculine side of things, no matter the pretext for combat, it seemed to have been a rite of passage for a boy to become a man. Warriors took upon costumes and equipment that seemed to have symbolic significance. Combat itself would be preceded by ritual or sacrifice. What does that sound like in 2020? It sounds exactly like sports. They seem to have equipment that had symbolic significance and it would be preceded by ritual or sacrifice. So that's very akin to a lot of sports as you say, see today, a lot of what goes on in the military as well. But I bring this up to say that you don't necessarily have to be in the military and have to be going out and killing people, which again, I don't, I really, wouldn't agree with philosophically anyway, but there are ways to connect to this today, whether you're one of the most competitive athletes in the world or you're engaging in a physical activity where there's competition that's against our people, and that can be healthy and actually enjoyable. So most of the basic weapons used by warriors appeared before the rise of most hierarchical systems. Bows and arrows, clubs, spears, and other edge weapons were in widespread use. So again, how do we connect to this today where there are Lots of ways that you can use bows and arrows, uh, learn to shoot or do anything like that with firearms. So I think that's something that if you feel inclined or have a proclivity to connect with this warrior ethos, this can help you do. I know a couple of weeks ago I was shooting a bow and arrow and just the process of that, having to be in the meditative state to focus and do that, it was like you were activating latent DNA that was in your body that I know that my ancestors would have been doing and it just feels natural and feels like something that is natural for your body to do. And I think when we do those things, we're connecting not only to our ancestors, but to the earth and who we are as human beings. So again, there's a way to frame this where yes, warriors in the past may have been people that killed and did things, which I don't agree with, but there are certain things that we can incorporate in our lives today to help us connect to this. So 
Um, just to go a little bit deeper, there's a ton of different warrior type societies and everything. Um, but to give a little bit more about like how warriors were seen within society. So the warrior ethic in many societies later became the preserve of the ruling class. So Egyptian pharaohs would depict themselves on war chariots, shooting at enemies or smashing others with clubs. Fighting was considered a prestigious activity only when associated with status and power. European mountain knights would often feel contempt for the foot soldiers recruited from lower classes. In Mesoamerican societies, uh, pre-Columbian America, the elite aristocratic soldiers remained separated from the lower classes of the stone soldiers. So, and also the samurai were the hereditary military nobility and uh, officer caste of Japan from the 12th to the late 19th century. So you see this all across the world. It's not just particular to one region of the world or one culture. That's why I think it's something that's kind of inbuilt into our DNA because you see this in the Americas before they were settled by Europe. You see it in Europe, you see it in Africa, you see it in Asia. So you see it in all of these places. And this is something that as a human, we have this idea around our head. And I think if you can channel that into something positive and into activities that help you with your life, I think especially as a man, if you're a man listening to this, it's something that can really help you integrate into the modern world today where that really isn't a thing. And short of you being in the military or being a really high level athlete, you may not get these things, but you can use them to be more comfortable with who you are as a person and I think live a more enjoyable life. So uh, that's my take on the warrior ethos. And if you would like for me to talk about this more, this is something that I really enjoy. I love to read books on. And would love to hear your feedback if you think this is something cool to talk about. So moving along, the next one I'm going to talk about is relationship currency. So what I wanted to do, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, lately particularly in my job as an entrepreneur, where relationships are extremely important. But I think for much of my life, I had the tendency to value my skill sets based on what I knew. And there's an old saying that says, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And the older I get, the more I realize that it's extremely true because if you were trying to build a business of any sort, yes, technical expertise is good. Yes, technical expertise might make you a nice, nice living. But if you ever want to build a business and build one that actually changes the world, that makes a monumentous impact on the world, it's going to have to be built on relationships. And I don't care how smart you are, how high your IQ is, as much as I would like to just be alone in a room sometimes by myself and work on things by myself. That will only get you so far. Your ability to create and harness the capital from relationships will be directly proportional to the success you have in life. And this is one thing I am trying to work on myself, and I think we could all do a better job, is harnessing the power of relationships and how important that is. But I want to talk about relationships as a currency. So what is currency? Currency is anything that gets traded for value. So in today's world, we obviously think of currency as money. So the US dollar is currency that we use to trade for goods and services that we want to have, right? So we use US dollars to trade for what we want to have. Now, there are other types of currency that we don't necessarily think of as currency, but I want to make the argument that relationships are most likely the most important currency that we can have. And the reason I say that is because relationships is what's going to help you achieve increases in the hierarchical 
world that we live in and increase your status which is going to directly relate to the types of experiences you can have and the types of opportunities that you can have so again you can go to college you can do all the right things you can get a phd you can educate yourself to the hilt but if you do not build relationships with people that all that's going to be meaningless so if you can leverage relationships to get what you want out of life you're going to be more successful and the reason i bring this up is because a few years ago i started a job in sales and in sales it's all about relationships and if you actually break down sales to a science you learn how to approach this and this is the way I kind of did my job. You learned how to approach it from more of a scientific method standpoint, rather than just relying on your own wit or charm or whatever uh, charisma that you may or may not have. There's actually a science to this where you can actually go talk to other people and push yourself outside of your comfort zone to build relationships with people, to build a network. And if you think about your life as building and always getting better to the next thing, one of the most important things you can do is be adding to the network of people around you that you communicate with because the opportunities that you have will only be limited, will be limited to the network that you have. So any job that you want, any relationship that you want, anything like that is going to be around the network you have because as humans, we deal in proximity with others. Everything we get is from proximity to other people. So if you can become a master of building those relationships, you're all of a sudden playing at a whole new level of currency that most people never get to because they don't understand that relationships are currency. So yes, they may build relationships, but don't know how to leverage those as currency to get what they want out of life. And I'm not saying that in a Machiavellian sense, because I think we can get what we want by helping others get what they want as well. So when you're doing this, you're also helping and contributing to the world and to making the world a better place. But just think about that for today. Think about the relationships that you're building is not what you can get out of them right now or even what you can do as far as having expertise, but as being more aligned with doing something long-term that helps build value and contribute to the world. So my two cents on that. Now let's move along. I wanted to talk about tyrosine. So I'm going to talk about benefits of tyrosine. So tyrosine is an amino acid, and this is one thing that I make my own pre-workout, and I mix in with my own pre-workout. But um, this is from Dr. Axe's website, who I've used before, and it's a really good website. But tyrosine, just to bring it down a little bit, is an important precursor to neurotransmitters and substances like epinephrine, norepinephrine, and dopamine, which means it helps the body produce chemicals that support your thyroid energy and mood and make this bigger for you guys um this is why some people claim that taking this amino acid can help speed up your metabolism not only can you get it from eating foods with protein like meat eggs or fish but it's also available in supplement form which some people take when they're trying to lose weight so levels of the amino acid tryptophan and tyrosine fluctuate depending on whether someone eats carbohydrate rich or protein rich meals and that means for most people, it's a good idea to include both of these types of macronutrients in your diets. And while eating complex carbs and increased feelings of calmness and even sleepiness, thanks in part to tryptophan boosting serotonin levels, eating protein tends to increase alertness and ability to concentrate due to a rise in tyrosine. So tyrosine or L-tyrosine, as you'll probably see it a lot, is one of 20 amino acids that help build proteins. It's considered a non-essential amino acid because 
the body makes it from another amino acid called phenylalanine. Phenyl, always mess this up. Phenylalanine. This means that you don't need to get tyrosine from foods, although obtaining it more from your diet can be helpful. So what are the benefits of tyrosine? Uh, basically can help fight fatigue, depression, poor cognitive function, and potentially weight gain. So not only does it help with your brain health, which is ultimately what this show is all about, but it can also help with uh, weight gain. So does tyrosine increase dopamine? Yes, both dopamine and norepinephrine production are impacted by the amount of tyrosine you eat or obtain from supplements and dopamine and norepinephrine are manufactured from tyrosine with the help of several other nutrients such as folate, B vitamins, copper, and magnesium. So what are some of the health benefits? Well, one, it protects against stress and may help manage symptoms of depression. Number two, it can help increase energy and mental performance. Number three, it may support weight loss. Number four, it supports thyroid health, which is one of the most important things possible you can do right now and your metabolism. Five, it may help decrease symptoms of withdrawal. And uh, as far as withdrawal goes, that could include alcohol consumption, anything that you may have uh, an addictive trait to. Uh, Some of the best foods you can get it from are Grass-fed meats, wild-caught fish, pasture-raised eggs, nuts and seeds, beans and legumes, whole grains like quinoa, oats, etc., and protein powders. And as far as supplement goes or dosage, I would say I would recommend taking between 500 milligrams to one gram, depending on uh, how big you are. I'm a 200-pound male, so most supplements, that's the size will come from if you get it from a health food store or anything like that. Um, for depression, this is also known to help depression. Standard dosage r- ranges between nine to 13 and a half gram, 13 and a half grams for a 200 pound person and seven to 10 grams for a 150 pound person. Um, you should take it on an empty stomach without food since it can interfere with absorption and effects may be felt in as little as 30 to 60 minutes. So again, tyrosine, really powerful amino acid. And I noticed that days that I take it, I usually try to take it every day in my pre-workout, but it does wonders just in helping with focus and the ability. And also I think with elevating your mood a little bit too. Lastly, to move on to something in line with health, I found an article that talked about 12 reasons why salt is good for you. So a lot of people are still on the knowledge train that salt is bad for you. And I don't want to say that on an individual case because depending on your body type, salt may not be good for you. But for the most part, I think a lot of the vilification of salt is overblown. So what are some reasons salt is good for you? So in one study, subjects consuming less than 2,300 milligrams of sodium per day had significantly higher mortality rates. And again, these are more correlation things. Salt aids blood sugar control by improving insulin sensitivity. Again, always go back to insulin sensitivity, glycemic variability, and inflammation are going to be two of the most important things you can do to control your health. Salt is a natural antihistamine um, to help prevent allergies. Your body needs salt to maintain the proper stomach pH, uh, which helps with absorption and digestion of food. Salt lowers adrenaline spikes, so it kind of helps uh, normalize your mood. It improves sleep quality, which I think is something, at least in the first world now, is hugely important for us to have high sleep quality. Uh, Adequate salt consumption encourages a healthy weight and fast metabolism. And increased salt intake leads to an increase in elimination of cortisol and lower blood cortisol levels. 
which of course cortisol is the stress hormone. So salt also supports thyroid function. Again, there's something with thyroid. So take your salt and tyrosine at the same time. Salt also supports hyper hypersomolarity of the extracellular flu fluid. And this means that salt can actually speed up your metabolism. Uh, increased sodium intake also correlates with increased thermogenesis, uh, which just means our body's ability to produce heat. Adequate salt supports balanced hormones. Again, another hugely important thing to make sure your hormones are balanced. And salt also makes food more satisfying, causing you to eat less of it. So if you had questions about salt. Now, I will say this just to close out with salt. It is very important that you look at the quality of salt. A lot of pink Himalayan sea salt is actually from Pakistan and come from mines that are pretty contaminated. Also, table salt is known to have up to 80 to 90 percent of microplastics in it in some case. So I would say make sure you are buying a really clean salt. I like Celtic sea salt. You can get it at any grocery store. But I know in terms of ones that you'll see at your grocery store, that is the cleanest and best tasting, in my opinion, too, of ones that I've seen. So that was episode 93 today, folks. Hopefully you enjoyed it and got a few nuggets out of it that you can take and implement in your life today. I really appreciate you tuning in if you listen to the whole thing. And as always, don't forget, join the Facebook group, ask some questions in there, and I will do them on the next episode where we go into a Q&A. So that being said, have an amazing day, and I will talk to you soon. Peace.